He was evil personified in the 1900s, murdering at least 21 people, although many say the number is closer to 100. And the number of men and boys he sexually assaulted, according to him, was in the thousands. He was a serial killer, a spree killer, a mass murderer, a rapist, a child molester, an arsonist, a thief, and he was an author. He was an international killing machine who was jailed over and over only to escape or be released. And he had to commit murder inside a prison to finally get a death sentence of his own. He hated everything and everyone around him. This is Carl Panzram, the dark heart of hatred. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Podork. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our friends in Nigeria. Oh. Ready for this? I am. Nah, nah, nah. Well, shoot, I could have done that one. I know. And I have to say, <laughs> that's from one of our YouTube watchers, um, at Priscillian Wasi. Well, welcome to, welcome to the party, Nigeria. Yes, yes. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. When you do, you get a notification when a new episode is out each Wednesday. Yep. Like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find Hitch to Homicide. That's it. We appreciate your comments and all of your case suggestions. In fact, this case was suggested by one of our in-laws and outlaws. Oh, really? So be sure to go join that group. It's our closed Facebook group. Yep, that wacky crew. Yes, just answer a few <laughs> questions and you're in. Yep. And you can suggest cases. But you don't have to be an in-law and outlaw to suggest a case. But yeah. this person was. Yeah. Speaking of, this case is about a very disturbed man. He's a brutal killer, pure evil, unrelenting hate. It's a really good example of why children need discipline, but they also need love. Yeah. This case will make you want to go hug all your people and tell <laughs> them that you love them and care about them because Carl was just never loved. And in turn, he really only hated. And and now that I've got you so excited for this case, <laughs> all about hate, <laughs> let me thank some sources. All right. The Travel Channel, Wikipedia, All That's Interesting, The Crime Wire, Investigation Discovery, True Crime, Man's Dark Imagination, CrimeLibrary.org, and Panzram, Butchering Humanity, an autobiography by Carl Panzram. Hmm. I did read it, and I will have a link to the book and all the other sources in the show notes. All right. Well, you ready? I am. Let's do it. Charles Carl Panzram was born to Prussian immigrant parents on June 28, 1872, in East Grand Forks, Minnesota. 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 And, of course, Prussia would become Germany, so I read in a few sources his parents were German. Gotcha. Carl had five brothers and one sister. Two of his brothers are going to die. Oh. When he's seven, Carl's parents separate. His father basically abandons the family, leaving them penniless. Hmm. 
The older brothers left as soon as they could, and he and his sister and their mom worked the farm to survive. Gotcha. Carl and his sister would go to school in the day, and as soon as they came home at night, they were sent to work in the fields until sundown or later. His mother, according to Carl, beat him on a regular basis. In fact, he's been quoted as saying the only thing he ever earned was, quote, beatings and hard work, end quote. Wow. Carl believed from an early age that nothing he did was good enough. Carl also said that from an early age, he saw the difference between the haves and the have-nots, and he was not going to live his life <laughs> as a have-not. Yeah. So to escape his life of poverty and beatings, he began to drink alcohol and was arrested on a drunk and disorderly charge at the tender age of eight. <laughs> eight? Eight years old. Wow. I was hoping for a verdi bird for Christmas at eight. <laughs> and he's out drinking. Wow. And if you know what a verdi bird is, go ahead and <laughs> let me know. <laughs> well, while you were verdi birding it, he's <laughs> drinking. And let me tell you what, it's all downhill from wow. this point, which is pretty sad. Wow. At the age of 11, Carl decides he wants to see the world. He wants to be a cowboy. Hmm. So he hopped on a freight train headed west. And before he goes, he steals some cake and some apples and a gun from a house, a neighbor's house. All the essentials. Just just pack what you need. <laughs> yeah. That's his go bag. Wow. But when he's caught and returned home, his mother, quote, beat him half to death, end quote. Wow. And he had to be punished for stealing. So the court sent Carl to the Minnesota State Training School for Boys, where he learned, according to him, quote, man's inhumanity to man, end no. quote. Well, that can't be good. None of this is good. Wow. <laughs> he arrives in 1903 at the age of 12, and they immediately try to beat the word of the Lord into him. Mm. They try to convert him into a Christian with fire and brimstone and, according to Carl, violent beatings. He didn't want anything to do with it or them. And after the beatings, he hated Christianity all the more. Yeah, I'm sure. Understandable. Yeah. He was also out for revenge at this point, And he was willing to take out his anger and revenge on anyone. Like, it didn't have to be his abusers. Hmm. Anybody who was close or within swinging distance wow. is going to do. Yeah. Young Carl doesn't think that there are any kind people in the world, and the physical and mental abuse he endures at the school just makes him hate even more. I'm sure. He's a kid that's been beaten up and tortured from the get-go, and it's going to show. Yeah. Now, while he's at school, he works in the serving line of the correctional officer's cafeteria, and he would pee in their soup and drinks. What? Or he would masturbate into their ice cream and uh, then hide and watch them eat and drink. Uh, he got a kick out of it. Jeez. Then Carl tried to escape the boy's home. When he's captured by one of the officers, he is severely beaten. And when he recovers, he puts rat poison into George Mann, the school superintendent's rice pudding. I've also read it was his coffee. Yeah. But he's caught and he's severely beaten once again. So in retaliation, Carl set fire to a building on campus where the paint shop was located, which, of course, burned <laughs> to the ground. I'm sure it did rather quickly. Yeah. yeah. So this is Carl's pattern. Get into trouble, be punished severely, refuse to break, and then go out and cause more trouble as an act of revenge. Yeah. It's a horrible, horrible cycle sure. that Carl is never going to break. Mm. Now, some of the other boys say to him, look at Carl. Yeah. You need to play the game they want you to play. Right. Just tell them you want to be a good boy and that you want to be a preacher. Oh, okay. 
And if you do that, they're going to let you go home. Really? So that's exactly what he does. And at 13 years old, he is paroled where his record states that he is a, quote, nice, clean boy of morals and a credit to those in authority, end quote. Wow. Is that before or after he was peeing in your iced tea (laughs) and burning down your paint shop? Wow. I don't know. Yeah. According to Carl, the boys' school was a place for him to get an education on how to commit crime and how to best execute on those crimes. Mm. Carl had made up his mind. He was going to, quote, rob, burn, destroy, and kill everywhere I went and everybody I could as long as I live, end quote. And, buddy, let me tell you, he's going to make good on his promise. I guess everybody has to have goals. Everybody's got to have a dream. Jeez. When Carl leaves the boys' reform school, he's given $5, a new suit of clothes, and a train ticket. And he used his money for candy and fruit and hopped on the train and heads for home. But when he arrives, his mom takes away his new suit, puts him in overalls, and marches him out to the fields. Get to work, Carl. Wow. I I thought I had it rough in the summer, you know, in between... uh, our summer vacation for school when my parents made me weed the garden. Yeah, go mow the yard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it wasn't so bad. No. Okay. He deals with this for about a year, but when he's 14, he hops the railroad again saying he wanted to be a hobo. Hobo is short for homeward bound, in case you didn't know that. Yep. He quickly learned how to ride the trains on the inside and the outside without paying a dime. He would lie, beg, and steal for food. Carl would never really work another day in his life. Hmm. One night when he was feeling all alone on the tracks, he decided to have a walk around to find somebody to talk to. He's lonely. Sure. And according to Carl, he happened upon four burly adult men, hobos, in a Mm boxcar. He tells them that, you know, I've just left this really warm boxcar. And the men are like, okay, show us. And they follow Carl to the boxcar where the four adult men close the door on this young teenage boy. Yeah. The train leaves the station, and these four men repeatedly raped Carl over and over. Oh, wow. Quote, I cried, I begged, and pleaded for mercy, pity, and sympathy, but nothing I could say or do would sway them from their purpose. Wow. I left that box a sadder, sicker, but wiser boy, end quote. Oh, man. And this isn't the only time this is going to happen to him, except according to Carl, the second time it happens when he's a kid, when he's raped, the men used kindness to lure him, to get out of him what they what they wanted. So maybe that meant he had sex in exchange for food or alcohol. Mm. In 1905, while traveling through Butte, Montana, police arrest 14-year-old Carl on small petty larceny charges. He's put in a jail cell with 50 to 100 other grown men, hardened criminals. He appeared in court and was sentenced to a year in reform school in Miles City, Montana. So he's heading back to reform school. Okay. And when Carl settles in, a man named Officer Biz Hart, an ex-prize fighter who worked at the reform school, made it his mission to make Carl's life a living hell. Oh, wow. Clearly, the note didn't follow from the first reform school <laughs> that he's peeing and masturbating into <laughs> yeah. food. Yeah. Yeah. The torture's not going to last because Carl hit Officer Bizhart over the head with a metal board. Oh. Quote, it didn't kill him, but it made him pretty sick, end quote. I'm sure it did. And after that, Officer Bizhart left Carl alone, but it didn't matter because the other guards would beat Carl in retaliation for what he did to their buddy, Bizhart. Wow. 
Then Carl and Jimmy Benson, another boy from the reform school, decided they were going to escape. And their plan included meeting up again after they ran away at this water tank, which is 40 miles away from the school in Terry, Montana. So Carl meets up with Jimmy and they travel together for about a month, which just showed me that he was capable of having a normal relationship with someone. Yeah. Because he had a friend. Right. Jimmy taught Carl how to rob church poor boxes. Oh. Which I didn't even realize that people would just put money in a poor box, like for church, instead of like taking up a collection each week. Yeah. I guess there was another box for the poor. Right. And he also taught him how to perform a stick up. And before these two decide to go their separate ways, they've robbed and stolen so much that they each have about $150 worth of rings, watches, money, and firearms. Wow, which in those days was worth a lot of money. It's a lot of money, and he's a young kid. Yeah. In 1906, Carl joins the U.S. Army after lying about his age. He's 16 when he joins the 6th Regular U.S. Infantry (laughs) and is stationed in Fort Harrison in Indiana. Okay. He apparently was drunk when he enlisted, (laughs) which might be why just a month after joining the Army, he gets in trouble for stealing and is sent to the guardhouse. And after a court-martial, he is sentenced to three years in Leavenworth. Ouch. Ooh, that's, that's severe. Yeah, very severe. Wow. Now, William Howard Taft who at the time was the Secretary of War and would eventually become the 27th President of the United States, he's the guy that approves Carl's sentence at Leavenworth. Okay. That's called foreshadowing. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Now, while Carl is there, he attempts to burn down part of the prison. We've seen this movie before. We've seen this one before. But this time he's not successful. And while in Leavenworth prison, he's always in trouble the entire time he's there. And he works in this rock quarry using an 18-pound hammer. Hmm. He's also one of the only prisoners who carried a 50-pound ball and chain around his leg. (laughs) The old ball and chain, honey. I was about to say, he wasn't even married. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Oh, you're my ball and chain. I know I'm your ball and chain. You better believe it, buddy. (laughs) Then in 1910, after serving 37 months, Carl convinces the parole board, just like he'd done at the boys' school, that he was reformed and that he was a man of God. Mm. And again, he gets $5, a new suit, and a train ticket to Denver, Colorado. Wow. Kind of like his monopoly. Pass, go and get $200. Okay. And at this point, Carl's a man of six feet, 195 pounds. And because he worked in the quarry and toted around a 50-pound ball, Carl got strong. Yeah. Quote, the worse the food got and the more they worked me, the harder I got, end quote. Mm. I have a feeling that Carl was ripped. And I've seen some pictures of him. He's not a, he's a scary looking guy. He's got some muscles. Okay. Carl arrives in Denver, and he's out of money, so he starts working at this mule skinner's camp. These were professional mule drivers whose job it was to keep the mules hauling materials to and from job sites. So for me, I'm like, he's just whipping the mules, probably enjoying every single moment of it. But Carl can't work and not get into trouble, and his boss soon got rid of him at gunpoint. Wow. Okay, that's your... Pretty much getting fired. Yeah. Get on out of here. Get. (laughs) Get. (laughs) You're fired or I'll fire. Yeah. (laughs) So Carl walks away, 
goes into town and buys himself a gun with the money he'd earned. Then he went to the red light district where there were sex workers and mobsters. He decides he wants to be a mobster too, but he overindulges in alcohol and sex. And the next day after deciding to be a big time mobster, he wakes up in an alley without his money or his gun. (laughs) And a week later, he discovers he has gonorrhea. Oh, geez. He's had a night of debauchery. Tell him what he's won. (laughs) You've got a full-blown case of gonorrhea. It's a raging case of gonorrhea. You did not disappoint with that line, honey. (laughs) I knew you'd make it. I knew you'd do it. Tell him what he's won, Bob. Yep. Carl makes his way into Mexico, where he joins the Foreign Legion of the Constitutionalist Army of Mexico. Okay. He did this for one reason only, so he could rob the churches along the routes where the army was marching. Wow. But this doesn't last long. And in less than a month, Carl deserted the Army of Mexico and found his way to California. Fresno, California. And while he's in Fresno, he robs chicken coops and sets them on fire. But he's arrested for stealing a bicycle and is sentenced to 120 days in jail. He'd actually serve 30, not because they let him go, but because he escaped. Wow. In 1912, Carl makes his way to Dallas, Oregon. He's arrested for a charge we don't really have a record of, but he's using the name Jack Allen. He's also going to use other aliases, Carl Baldwin, Jack Allen, and Jefferson Baldwin in Oregon, Jeff Davis in Idaho and Montana, Jefferson Davis in California and Montana, Jeff Rhodes in Montana, John (laughs) King, and John O'Leary in New York. Good grief. How does he keep it straight? Well, because he doesn't. He definitely doesn't want to be Carl Pan's right now. Yeah, true, true. (laughs) But after he's arrested in Dallas, Oregon, he goes to jail for a couple of months, and then he escapes. Also in 1912, Carl traveled to Moscow, Idaho, where he went by the name Jeff Davis. He attempted to break a guy out of jail, a safe cracker. (laughs) And he did it because he wanted to learn how to crack a safe. Oh, really? So what better way to do it than to bust one out of jail and force him to teach you? I guess there wasn't YouTube in those days. No YouTube. (laughs) He's arrested and put in jail in Wallace, Idaho. And when he's released, he's arrested again in Chinook, Montana, where he went by the name Jefferson Davis, Jeff Davis. Mm -hmm. He's arrested for burglary, but then he cops a plea and takes a one-year sentence. He'd only serve eight months before he escaped and headed off to Three Forks, Montana, where he's arrested just one week later for burglary. Wow. This time he used the name Jeff Rhodes. He's sentenced to one year at the state penitentiary in Deer Lodge, Montana, and he'd actually served two years before he's discharged. And I don't know if that's because he was constantly fighting against the guards. Yeah, because was... yeah, because I read he was always in trouble when he was incarcerated. I'm sure. Yeah, he refused to follow the guards' orders, and he would attack them on a regular basis. Wow. He's just a bad seed. He's a bad penny. Yeah. In 1914, while in jail in Montana, this time as Jeffrey Baldwin, Carl was sodomizing every person or prisoner he could get his hands on. Hmm. When he was paroled, the warden gave him $5, a new suit, and a train ticket out of town. Yeah. Get the hell out. (laughs) We don't need you anymore. Carl arrives in Astoria, Oregon, and on June 1st, 1915, breaks into a home and steals a bunch of stuff and is caught when he tries to sell these items. 
The court offered Carl a deal. He would plead guilty and receive a lesser sentence. Carl pled guilty, but then the court decided to sentence him for the full sentence for burglary. (laughs) Wow. They didn't hold up their end of the deal. So Carl attempted to set the jail on fire, and then he bars the doors so the guards can't get to the fire. Hmm. They finally do, and after they put it out, they beat Carl within an inch of his life. At this point, he's sent to the state penitentiary in Salem, Oregon, arriving on June 24th, 1915. And the warden there is a guy named Harry Minto, and he believed in harsh treatment of inmates, which included beatings and isolation. Just the perfect recipe for Carl to thrive in. Yeah. Later, Carl stated that he swore he, quote, would never do that seven years, and I defied the warden and all his officers to make me, end quote. Mm. Carl was disciplined a lot, as you might imagine, while incarcerated, including 61 days in solitary confinement. But this prison is where Carl meets fellow prisoner Otto Hooker. Okay. Otto and Carl would escape from the penitentiary in Salem on September 18th, 1917. But after their escape, Otto actually killed the warden, Mm. Harry Minto. He kills Harry Minto while evading capture. He actually shoots the warden in the head and was mortally wounded himself. But this made Carl an accomplice to murder. Yeah. So Carl is taken back to prison, but on May 12th, 1918, he sawed through the prison bars, escaped again, and caught a freight train out of town heading east. He would never go back to the Northwest again. He arrived in Pennsylvania, changed his name to John O'Leary, and registered for the Army draft under his new name. (laughs) Okay. That's his new name. Well, at least it's different. Yeah. Then he robbed a hotel lobby of $12,000 and headed to New York, joining the YMCA, the Marine Firemen Oilers, and the Water Tenders Union. (laughs) Okay. But because he had a record and he'd just stolen a bunch of money from a hotel, Carl was able to procure himself seamen's papers and passports, and he jumped ships and headed to South America. Ah. First, he went to Panama, then he went to Peru, Chile, then he went back to Panama to run a gang of workers, then he went to Costa Rica. And from Costa Rica, he went across the Atlantic to England, Southampton to be exact. Wow. He left Southampton and journeyed to Louavre, which is my French for the day. That's the <laughs> port in northern France. Okay. Here, he joined a ship headed to Hamburg, Germany. He's going to travel to other European ports before returning to the United States in 1920. So for two years, he basically disappears. And I can promise you, he murdered and sodomized his way through all of these countries. Mm. But in 1920, he comes back to the States, landing in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Okay, He's back, and he immediately robs a jewelry store in Bridgeport, where he says he got $7,000 in merchandise. But when he sold it, he only made $1,500. And after he gets his money, he immediately signs to the ship, the SS Manchuria, and sailed off for Hamburg, Germany again. Okay, But not for long, he came back to the eastern seaboard, specifically New York, in the summer of 1920. So he's just traveling constantly. He is staying a step ahead of every bad deed that he's doing. He's staying off the grid. Five days after making it into New York on September 16th, 1920, he goes to New Haven, Connecticut and robs the home of William Howard Taft, the former president of the United States and the man who'd signed off on Carl's sentence in Leavenworth, 
1906, before he became president and when he was the Secretary of War. Wow. He breaks into Taft's mansion in New Haven, not even knowing who lived there. I was going to say, did he know it he was? He didn't know wow. who lived there. He thought the house looked fat. Of all, That's of, what he said. It looked fat. Of all the gin joints and all the, yeah. Of all the gin joints in all the world, yeah. He was just going in there looking for valuables, and he found Liberty Bonds with the name William H. Taft. That can't be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He broke into this house on Whitney Avenue, and like I just said, he said it looked fat. It was ready for the taking. (laughs) And it was full of $40,000 worth of jewelry, Liberty Bonds, and as well— Taft's own gun, a forty-five caliber automatic pistol. Wow. He's going to kill people with the former president's gun. Oh, man. I didn't. Wow. I had no idea. On the Lower East Side of Manhattan, he sold everything, banking three grand. He used the $3,000 he got from fencing the goods to buy a yacht, a yacht named the Akista, which he registered under the name John O'Leary. Wow. So he's this, he's been sailing back and forth, and now he knows enough just to have his own boat. Yeah. Gee whiz. Along the way, he broke into dozens of boats on their moorings, stealing booze, guns, supplies, anything he could get his hands on. Mm. He eventually moored the Akista at the New Haven Yacht Club. He's <laughs> at the Yacht Club. <laughs> Where he settled for a time, enjoying the hot weather, drinking Prohibition booze, and thinking about his next victims. Mm. Now, when Carl visited Manhattan's Lower East Side, he noticed there were loads of visiting sailors on shore leave from their ships docked along the East River. I just want to stop for a second. If you've ever been in New York City during Fleet Week, when the ships come in and dock and all the sailors get off. Yep. If you're a woman, it's pretty nice. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's pretty nice. It's They all look like they're 12, but it's very, it's, 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 it's really incredible. It's really interesting because they all have their uniforms on and stuff. Honey, I still have my dad's sailor's cap, <laughs> so just let me know. I'll meet you later. Wear Go the hat. All right. Thanks. <laughs> but what Carl sees in the, all of these sailors, he realizes that many of them are looking for work on outgoing freighters or local boats. Because it was a time when shipping was becoming huge. It was really big. Right. So he walked the streets of the East Village and came up with a plan. Mm-mm. Quote, then I figured it would be a good plan to hire a few sailors to work for me, get them out on my yacht, get them drunk, commit sodomy on them, rob them, and then kill them. Jeez. This I done, end quote. Wow. So for several weeks, he went down to the South Street neighborhood and picked out one or two victims. And Carl told them that he had work on board of his yacht and he needed deckhands. And he promised them anything just to get them on board. Hmm. And then he anchored off City Island at the foot of Carroll Street, a place he stayed for the entire summer of 1920. He did this over and over and over again. Wow. And nobody missed these guys that he was killing? Not for a while. Okay. City Island is a two-square-mile area off of the Bronx. And in 1920, City Island was a secluded community of fishing boats, sail manufacturers, and people who minded their own business. (laughs) And at first, nobody noticed Captain John O'Leary, the guy who came on shore only to buy supplies and always seemed to have a new crew each week. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, because he's raping them and murdering them and dumping their bodies. Yeah. 
Which brings me to my next subject, Execution Rocks Lighthouse. Execution Rocks Lighthouse is a lighthouse in the middle of Long Island Sound on the border between New Rochelle and Sands Point, New York. It stands 55 feet tall, and a white light flashes every 10 seconds. It's called Execution Rocks because, according to many sources, it was a place where condemned Revolutionary War prisoners and colonials faced death at the hands of British soldiers. Wow. The prisoners were chained to the rocks at low tide and would slowly drown as the tide would rise. Wow. Now, by the mid-1800s, it wasn't used to murder, but the rocks were still dangerous and ships would be destroyed or run aground in Long Island Sound. So in 1847, the U.S. Congress appropriated $25,000 for the construction of the lighthouse. And 20 years later, the lighthouse keeper's quarters were added. Hmm. So it was just a lighthouse for the next 70 years. Okay. One with this horrible history. Sure. That is until Carl learns about it. Quote, every day or two, I would go to New York and hang around 25 South Street and size up the sailors, end quote. When he convinced them to come on board his yacht, they would work for maybe a single day. Quote, we would wine and dine. And when they were drunk enough, they would go to bed. When they were asleep, I would get my Colt 45 automatic, this I stole from Mr. Taft's home, and blow their brains out, end quote. Wow. He then tied a rock onto each body and carried them into his skiff. He rowed east into Long Island Sound to the execution lighthouse, and there, not 100 yards from the lighthouse, Carl dumped his victims into the sea. Wow. Quote, there they are yet, 10 of them. I worked that racket about three weeks. My boat was full of stolen stuff, end quote. Gee whiz. But city islanders soon grow suspicious of the Akista and its skipper. Carl realized, I got to leave town. I got to go. <laughs> so he sailed down the coast of New Jersey with his last two passengers until he reached Long Beach Island, where he intended to kill them both. It's late August 1920, and a huge gale hit. And the Akista smashed into pieces against the rocks. Oh, wow. And Carl swam to the shore and barely escaped with his own life. Mm. So these two guys escaped with their lives because of Mother Nature. Yeah. Then in 1921, Carl served six months in jail in Bridgeport, Connecticut for burglary and possession of a loaded handgun. And when he's released, he joined a maritime union that was involved in a labor strike. Carl was rearrested for being involved in a running gun battle with police. Mm. He jumped bail and fled the state of Connecticut. A few days later, he stowed away on a ship and landed in Angola, a Portuguese colony on the west coast of Africa. He's just all over the place. All over the place. Wow. Killing, sodomizing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. He eventually got a job with the Sinclair Oil Company as a foreman on an oil drilling rig. And that, at that time, the American oil industry was involved in this exploratory expedition. They're trying to search for new sources of oil in Africa. Mm. And in the coastal town of Luanda, Carl raped and killed an 11-year-old boy. Oh. Carl lured the boy back to Sinclair Oil Company grounds where he sexually assaulted him and killed him by bashing his head in with a rock. Quote, I left him there, but first I committed sodomy on him, and then I killed him. His brains were coming out of his ears when I left him, and he will never be any debtor, end quote. Jeez. Wow, this guy is just pure evil. Evil. 
After this murder, Carl went back to Lobodo Bay on the Atlantic coast where he lived for several weeks in a fishing village. And the locals suspected him of the murder, but it can never be proven. And several weeks later, he hired six natives to take him into the jungle to hunt for crocodiles, which were bringing a hefty price from European speculators in the Congo. And the natives later demanded a cut of the profits. And he says yes. So they paddle into the jungle, never suspecting what's going to happen. And as they go downriver, Carl shot and killed all six men. He shot them all in the back, one by one. And while they lay in the bloody canoe, Carl shot each native again in the back of the head. Then he fed the bodies to the hungry crocodiles Mm. and rowed back to Lobodo Bay. And when he docked the boat, he realized he had to get out of the Congo since, quote, dozens of people saw me when I hired these men in the canoe, end quote. Wow. Staying one step ahead. Yep. He headed north up the Congo River toward a place called Point Banana and eventually made his way to the Gold Coast. He robbed farmers in the local village and got enough money to buy a fare to the Canary Islands. Okay. Broke and unable to find anybody worth robbing, he immediately stowed away on a ship to Lisbon, Portugal. Okay. But when he arrived in the city, he discovered that the local government already knew about him and his crime sprees in Africa. And the cops were looking for him. Yeah. So he managed to hide aboard another ship headed for America. And by the summer of 1922, we had him back. Mm. He was back. Carl thought it was easy to kill. He imagined himself making a living as a professional hitman who would murder for money. He wanted to be murder for hire. Wow. So he brought the gun he used in the Congo killings back to the United States with him, even though the cops were hot on his trail as he fled from Africa. Mm -hmm. In 1922, he had the gun fitted with a silencer by the Maxim Silent Firearms Company in Hartford, Connecticut. But when he went to test fire it later, he's pretty mad because it was still loud. Quote, if that heavy calibered pistol and the silencer had only worked as I thought it would, I would have gone into the murder business on a wholesale scale, end quote. Wow. Carl never stayed in one place very long. The police were hot on his trail for one crime or another, and that's why he changed his name all the time and never told anybody who he really was. Mm -hmm. He didn't trust anybody with the details of his real life. And as soon as Carl committed a crime, he'd get the heck fire out of town and stow away on a freighter or hitch a ride on a passing truck. He's always running, always looking over his shoulder. So he knows he's living on the edge. He's living on a prayer. Yeah. If he was the praying type, (laughs) which he is not. Yeah, I don't think he was. Yeah. Yeah. I think Carl thinks God abandoned him a long time ago. I think it's part of why he was so cruel. Nobody loved him, so he wasn't going to love anybody else either. Yeah. After a few days back in the United States, Carl went to the U.S. Customs Office in New York City where he renewed his captain's license and retrieved the papers for his yacht, the Akista, wrecked two years before. He planned to steal another boat and call her Akista. Ah. So he began to search the local boatyards in the New York area, and he wandered up the Connecticut coast, and soon he drifted into the seaport of Providence, Rhode Island, where he still could not find a boat that resembled the Akista, his boat. Right. So he continued north along the Boston Road into Boston and eventually arrived in the town of Salem, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It's July 18th, 1922, and he happens upon a 12-year-old boy named George Henry McMahon, who is walking alone. 
George lived at 65 Boston Street in Salem, and he spent most of that day at a neighbor's restaurant. That is, until the owner, Mrs. Lyons, sent him out for something. Okay. George left the restaurant and walked up Boston Street, and about an hour later, another neighbor, Mrs. Margaret Crean, saw George walking up the avenue with a stranger dressed in a blue suit with a cap. Okay. Henry was walking with Carl Panzram. Yeah. Quote, the boy's name I didn't know. He told me he was 11 years old. He was carrying a basket or a pail in his hand. He told me he was going to the store to do an errand. He told me his aunt ran the store. I asked him if he would like to earn 50 cents, and he said yes, end quote. Hmm. Carl walked with Henry to the nearby store. Inside, he was even brazen enough to speak with the clerk with this little boy in tow. And a few minutes later, Carl convinced Henry to go for a trolley ride. About a mile from where they boarded the car, they exited the trolley in a deserted section of town. Quote, I grabbed him by the arm and told him I was going to kill him. I stayed with the boy about three hours, and during that time, I committed sodomy on the boy six times, and then I killed him by beating his brains out with a rock. I had stuffed down his throat several sheets of paper out of a magazine, end quote. Then he covered the body up with tree branches and hurried out of town. Quote, I left him lying there with his brains coming out of his ears, he said. But as he fled the wooded area where he left McMahon's body, two Salem residents passed by, and they noticed this strange guy who was carrying what appeared to be newspaper. And he's walking away fast, and he seemed nervous. But the two witnesses, they were just like, you know, okay, whatever. It's a weird guy. Yeah. Immediately after the murder, Carl headed back toward New York. Little Henry's body was found three days later on July 21st. The Salem police and the surrounding communities formed posses and stopped strangers to ask questions. And several men, including a local pedophile who had attacked a few Salem children, were arrested as suspects. The murder was a headline for weeks, but it would remain unsolved for many years. Until the day in 1928, when those two same witnesses would see Carl's face when he's arrested for another murder in mm. Washington, D.C. Okay. So it's all going to start catching up with him. Yeah. The house yeah. of cards. Yes. Yeah. They would have no trouble identifying him as the man they saw in the sweltering afternoon of July 18th, 1922, just yards away from where the battered body of little George was found. Mm. And after Carl leaves Salem, he goes back to Westchester County and continues to look for a new boat to steal. And by early 1923, he'd rented an apartment in Yonkers under the name John O'Leary. And while living in Yonkers, Carl took a job as a watchman for the Abaco Mill Company. It's also at this time that he meets a 15-year-old boy named George Wallison. And according to Carl, he taught George the, quote, fine art of sodomy, Mm. but found he had been taught all about it and he liked it fine, end quote. Wow. During the early summer of 1923, Carl went back to Providence, Rhode Island, stole a sailboat out of one of the marinas. The boat was 38 feet long and outfitted with all the best equipment. He set sail for Long Island Sound, an area that he knows well, where he like dropped dead bodies off. He knows this area. He feels comfortable. Sure. You know, he he docked at New Haven for weeks at a time and would go out at night cruising the streets for victims to rob and rape. And over the next few weeks, he burglarized homes and boats in Connecticut. He stole jewelry, cash, guns and clothes. And off premium point in the city of New Rochelle, New York, he broke into a large yacht that was moored a distance offshore, stealing a 38 caliber handgun. It was the handgun that belonged to the police commissioner of New Rochelle. 
nine lives, this guy. He's just living on the edge. He's been in Taft's home. He's been in all these prisons. He's been like jumping from ship to ship to keep from being found. It's crazy to me. It's crazy. It's like a movie. (laughs) If if the movie, yeah, about a horrible person. It's a horror film. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like you you can't script that kind of stuff. I mean, usually people get caught, but he's just... Yeah, he's all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I know he's not Indiana Jones, but it's that kind of thing where it's just like one thing after another after another, but he's always just like skating skating out at the last second. Yeah. In June of 1923, he sailed up the Hudson River to Yonkers and docked overnight. There he picked up George Wallison and promised the boy that he could work on the yacht during his trip upriver. Okay. On Monday, June 25th, 1923, the boat cruised out of the Yonkers dock due north toward Peekskill, and later that night, Carl would sodomize George. Mm. They sailed 50 miles upriver and moored the yacht in a small bay off the Hudson River. Carl repainted the hull, changed the name on the stern. Then he went ashore looking for a buyer. And soon a young man agreed to come on board to check out the boat. It was a bad idea, dude. Bad idea. Yeah. Carl took the buyer out on the yacht the night of June 27th. They had a few drinks, and then the guy tries to rob Carl, who, according to him, was on to the guy from the (laughs) get-go. Carl shot the man twice in the head using the same gun that he'd stolen from the police commissioner's boat. Then he tied a metal weight onto the body, threw him overboard. Quote, he's still there yet, as far as I know, end quote. Wow. Now, remember... Carl still has George on the sailboat with him Yeah, when all of this is happening. And the next morning, Carl and George Wallison, who had now witnessed a murder the night before, sailed out of the bay heading downriver to Poughkeepsie. And Carl goes ashore, steals $1,000 worth of fishing nets, and they set sail again, cruising to Newburgh. And after the boat dropped anchor, George jumped ship and swam to shore. Mm. So it was almost like, I'll I'll let you rape me, but I'm not going to let you kill me. Yeah, yeah. And he eventually made his way back to Yonkers the next day and told the police about being sexually assaulted by Carl. So was George a willing participant or was he afraid for his life after seeing Carl kill the guy who came on board? Sure. Yonkers police alerted all the Hudson River towns to be on the lookout for, quote, Captain John O'Leary, who was sailing this 38-foot yacht downriver. And Carl made it as far as the village of Nyack, where he moored the boat at Peterson's boatyard and went to sleep. But Nyack cops were vigilant. And on the morning of June 29, 1923, they boarded the yacht and arrested Carl. Oh, wow. He was charged with sodomy, burglary, and robbery. And the next day, Yonkers detectives John Fitzpatrick and Charles Ward motored upriver on a municipal ferry to pick him up. He was placed in the Yonkers City Jail awaiting court appearance. On his arrest card, O'Leary mm-hmm. listed his occupation as seafarer. Okay. Not murderer. Yeah, yeah. He said he was born in Nevada and gave his age as 40. So he's you know, he's lying. Sure. I'm not Carl Pansram, the guy who was in Leavenworth. Yeah. Two nights later, on July 2nd, 1923, Carl tried to break out of the city jail with another prisoner named Fred Federoff. When they're caught, police put Carl or John O'Leary in solitary confinement. 
Carl then turned to his attorney for help. He tells his attorney, Mr. Cashin, the boat is worth five or $10,000, and he'd give him the boat and the papers if he got Carl out of jail. And his attorney arranged for bail, and a few days later, Carl was released. Ugh. He never came back. And when Cashin went to register the boat, it was discovered it was stolen. stolen. <laughs> and the police immediately confiscated uh, the yacht, and his attorney lost the posted bail. Wah. Carl goes back to Connecticut wanting to steal another boat. Mm. And when he got one, he was planning to sail to South America. But after robbing some men for money so he could eat, he traveled from New Haven to New London. And on August 9th, 1923, he starts walking the streets looking for somebody to mug. And instead, he sees a young boy who is begging. So he puts his knife to the boy's throat, drags him off, and rapes him while he holds a knife to this kid's throat. Mm. And when the little boy pled for mercy, Carl sodomized him again. And the little boy tells Carl that he's from Brooklyn and that his uncle is a policeman in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Carl took the belt from the little boy's pants and strangled him when he was finished with him. Carl would later write that of all his murders, he enjoyed this one the most. Wow. Quote, I committed a little more sodomy on him also. On the right-hand side of that road, I left the body of the murdered boy with his own belt still tied around his neck, end quote. Jeez. He tosses this little boy's body into the bushes, walks back out onto the street like nothing ever happened. The body would be found two days later. Mm. Then Carl catches a ride on a slow freight train headed for Manhattan. And on the Lower East Side, where boat captains were recruiting men for their big cargo ships, he hung around the taverns looking for work. And he managed to get a job as a bathroom steward on the U.S. Army Transport, U.S. Grant, which was leaving for China in one week. (laughs) But before the ship even left the dock, Carl got drunk on board and became involved in a brawl with other crew members, which got his ass kicked off the ship. So he made his way up to Grand Central Station, where he hopped a train to Connecticut. And because he was hungry and had no money, he decided to get off the train in the village of Larchmont, New York, to look for somebody to rob. He's got a thing for Connecticut, man. Yeah, yeah. On the night of August 29th, 1923, Carl breaks into the Larchmont train station with an axe. He's going through all the baggage there that's ready for the next day train that's, you know, that's taking off. Right. And Officer Richard Groob sees him going through a suitcase through the window. And Officer Groob pulls his gun on Carl, who pulls his axe on him. Mm. And these two wrestle. But Officer Groob disarms Carl and takes him into custody. And Carl, of course, tells them his name is John O'Leary. Yeah. And after he confessed to previous break-ins, Carl was charged with three additional burglaries. In village court the next morning, Judge Schaefer set bail at $5,000 and remanded Carl to county jail pending grand jury action. Now, while in jail, Carl told the police he was an escaped prisoner from Oregon. Now, why he starts doing this is really beyond me. Yeah. I don't know if he's tired or if he's just done. Yeah. But he tells them, I'm an escaped prisoner from Oregon, where he was serving a 17-year sentence for shooting a police officer. 
Okay. And Larchmont police sent word to Oregon, and they're like, do you know this clown? <laughs> and on August 29th, Larchmont Police Chief William Hines received this reply from the Warden Johnson Smith of the Oregon State Penitentiary. Quote, Jeff Baldwin is wanted very badly in Oregon. His was a noted case that attracted considerable attention all over the Pacific Coast, and we are very anxious to send an officer for him at the earliest possible moment, end quote. Okay. Because Carl was Jeff Baldwin in Oregon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he still had 14 years left on a sentence. Jeez. There was even a $500 reward for his capture, which Carl tried to collect (laughs) for his own arrest. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Carl knows Uh, he's used up all his nine lives. Yeah. And without his $500 in reward money, he sent a letter out to a guy named Romeo demanding $50 or he'd, quote, spill the beans on him. (laughs) And the money never came and the police never knew who John Romeo was. I don't think they even cared. Right. The grand jury indicted Carl and he sent to Sing Sing, but he was too hard to control. So they sent him to Clinton prison which was upstate and was better known as Danamora, hmm. the hellhole of no return and America's most brutal prison. Wow. Carl was stripped naked and whatever possessions he had were confiscated. Hmm. The guards treated the prisoners like animals. So what did Carl do? He tried to burn down the workshops. <laughs> and when he's foiled before he can do it, Next, he tried to kill a guard while he slept in a chair. He tried to escape after a few months, but broke both legs and ankles when he fell 30 feet onto concrete after scaling prison walls. Wow. His spine was also badly injured, but they didn't take him to a hospital or even the infirmary. Nope. He was hauled back to a cell and dumped on the floor. Oh, wow. Which, honestly, he brutally raped and murdered so many. It was probably too good for him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I have no compassion. It would be over a year before he's taken to a hospital where he's operated on for a rupture of some kind, maybe like a disc in his back. Sure. And one of his testicles are cut out. Oh. Ooh. But as soon as he's back in prison, he's sodomizing prisoners again. Guess you only need one testicle to do that. Yeah, geez. He, he was thrown into solitary where he was virtually ignored by the guards. Quote, I suffered more agony for many months, always in pain, never a civil answer from anyone, always a snarl or a curse or a lying hypocritical promise, which was never kept, hmm. crawling around like a snake with a broken back, seething with hatred and a lust for revenge. Five years of this kind of life, the last two years and four months confined in isolation with with nothing to do except brood. I hated everybody I saw. End wow. Quote. Wow. He made detailed plans on how to kill as many people as he could. He wanted to blow up a railroad tunnel while a train was passing through and send poison gas into the wreck. Jeez. He wanted to dynamite a bridge in New York and then rob the dead and injured as they lay dying on the ground. Mm. But his most elaborate plan, and the one he was sure would kill the most people, was his plot to poison the water supply and kill everyone in the village of Danamora. Gee whiz. Carl is released in July of 1928 after serving five years. What? He's released. Okay. 
He's permanently crippled, and if he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs before, <laughs> being in the hellhole of a prison had only made him crazier. Wow. Carl is consumed by revenge for the way he was treated at Danamora, and within two weeks, he committed a dozen burglaries and killed at least one man during a robbery. Mm. He does all this in Baltimore. And when he's arrested and delivered to the Washington, D.C. Post, he gave his real name for the first time in years. And this is also where Carl meets a 26-year-old rookie guard named Henry Lesser. Okay. Henry asked Carl upon his booking what his crime was. And Carl said, quote, what I do is reform people, end quote. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Now, not not one to like prison, Carl, of course, tried to escape by digging at the bars in his cell window, but he's ratted out by another prisoner and sent to isolation where he was handcuffed around a thick wooden pole and a rope was then tied to his handcuffs. Wow. He's hoisted up so that his toes are barely touching the ground and he's left there for 36 hours, just mm. like that. He cursed his own parents for giving him life and screamed that he would kill everyone if given the chance. The guards beat him until he was unconscious and left him tied to the post all night long. Mm. At some time during that night, Carl admitted to the murders of several young boys and told the guards how much he enjoyed it. Jeez. And soon the word got out to the press. You know, there, there's this story of a sadistic killer in the local jail who was confessing to all these murders. The Washington Post reported on October 28, 1928, that Panzram confessed to the murder of 14-year-old Alexander Luscock, a Philadelphia newsboy, and of Henry McMahon. Each day that went by, Carl told more and more, quote, if that ain't enough, I'll give you plenty more. Wow. I've been all over the world and I've seen everything but hell. And I guess I'll see that soon, end quote. Wow. Now, for some reason, this prison guard, Henry Lesser, took pity on Carl. He actually befriended him and he gave him a dollar to buy cigarettes and extra food. And this one little act of kindness meant the world to Carl because he wasn't used to any acts of kindness. Yeah. And these two men become friends and confided in each other. Then Carl agreed to write his life story for Lesser. And so over the next few weeks, while Lesser supplied pencil and paper, he would sneak it in. Carl wrote down the details of his twisted life of hate, depravity, and murder. Hmm. It was a 20,000-word confession Jeez. with details of his murders, dates, times, and places, as well as his arrest history. It's page after page of murder and rape that spanned continents. And he wasn't sorry for any of it. Wow. Not even the least bit. What an autobiography. Yeah. <laughs> still available on Amazon. I bought it. So wow. he's still fighting the guards every day in prison and going back to this pole and being strung up. But he didn't seem to care. The harder they beat him, the harder he fought against them. But Carl writes this letter to the DA in Salem confessing to killing little George McMahon and that he alone committed the murder. Quote, I alone am guilty. I not only committed that murder, but 21 besides. And I assure you here and now that if I ever get free and have the opportunity, I shall surely knock off another 22. Wow. Quote. 
Wow. Now, when his trial comes around, he acts as his own attorney for some burglary charges from 1928. He intimidates the witnesses and then takes the stand himself, telling the jury that not only did he rob the house, he stayed there for hours hoping the owners would come home so he could kill them. And of course, he's found guilty and he's sentenced to 25 years, 25 years he'd have to serve at Leavenworth, Mm. the place he says turned him into the hateful, awful person he was. I think he was already a hateful, awful person. We're hateful, awful people. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But Carl was happy to go back. It's reported that when he heard that was where he was going, this big evil grin breaks across his face. Wow. When he arrives on February 1st, 1928, Carl tells the warden T.B. White, quote, I'll kill the first man that bothers me, end quote. (laughs) Carl was too dangerous to be in the general population, so he even had a job at the prison in the laundry room where he could work all day alone. By the way, he writes to Lesser all the time, this guard that gave him the, the paper to write his autobiography. Right. But he's in the laundry room. He's supervised by a guy named Robert Warnicky, a guy who was notorious for writing up prisoners for like tiny little minor infractions. So as you might imagine, Carl got along with him just swimmingly. (laughs) Warnicky writes up Carl for infractions, which send Carl into solitary confinement. Then after Carl is released from solitary and on June 20th, 1929, Carl's working in the laundry room. And propped against the door is a four-foot-long iron bar used as a support for the wooden transport of crates of the laundry. And without a word, he picked up this heavy bar. He approaches Warnicky, who's doing paperwork and doesn't see what's about to happen. And Carl swings the iron bar over his head and bashes in Warnicky's skull, which breaks open instantly. Quote, Here's another one for you, you son of a bitch, end quote. Wow. Warnicky fell to the ground. Carl continued to beat in the head of this man, sending blood and bone matter all over the room. There were other inmates in the laundry that day, and they're watching Carl beat Warnicky to death. And the men are trying to escape, but Carl's thinking, I should kill all these other guys, too. So he attacked one of these inmates, breaking the guy's arm. The other inmates are trying to get out of the room, but the doors are locked. So they scream for help while Carl chases them, cursing. He's swinging this huge iron bar. He's smashing bones, desks, lights. He's breaking up the furniture into pieces. The general alarm sounds off in the prison. All these guards armed with submachine guns show up in the laundry. And the guards can see Carl holding this 20-pound steel bar like a baseball bat. Mm. And his clothes are shredded and he's covered from head to toe in blood. Wow. And Carl is very calm. Quote, I just killed Warnicky. Let me in, end quote. <laughs> but the guards won't open any doors until Carl drops this steel bar. And he says to them, quote, oh, I guess this is my lucky day, end quote. Wow. He dropped the bar. They opened the door and Carl walked quietly to his cell without saying a word. He's covered in blood and brain matter and he just sits down on his bunk. Wow. Like nothing had happened. She was. When the trial began on April 14th, 1930, for Warnicky's murder, Carl was rebellious and uncooperative. He limped into the courtroom at 9.30 a.m. The judge, Judge Hopkins, asked him if he had an attorney, and Carl told him, quote, no, and I don't want one, end quote. (laughs) 
The judge tells him he has the right to one. And they ask him how he pleads, to which Carl says, quote, I plead not guilty. Now you go ahead and prove me guilty. Understand? End quote. So the prosecutor calls a parade of witnesses and appearing were Warden T.B. White, who also brought the murder weapon to court. Five Leavenworth guards and 10 prisoners, several prisoners testified that they watched Carl smash his skull with this iron bar. Yeah. Like he's just laying there unconscious. And throughout the testimony, Carl sat in his chair smiling at the witnesses. The jury took 45 minutes to arrive at a verdict. To the surprise of no one, Carl was found guilty of murder with no recommendation for mercy. Yeah, that was probably like 44 minutes too long. (sighs) 44 minutes and 50 seconds too long. It was years too long. (laughs) Yeah. Years too long. Wow. He was remanded back to Leavenworth until, quote, the fifth day of September 1930, when between the hours of six to nine o'clock in the morning, you shall be taken to someplace suitable within the confines of the penitentiary and hanged by the neck until dead, end quote. Yeah. And to that, Carl smiled, quote, I certainly want to thank you, Judge. Just let me get my fingers around your neck for 60 seconds, and you'll never sit on another bench as a judge, end quote. The bailiff dragged him out of court while he laughed maniacally. Wow. Now, before Carl's death, he meets with Dr. Carl Miniger, a Harvard man and a pioneer of modern psychology. Of course, they're like, we got to talk to this guy. Yeah, yeah. And he wants Carl to talk to him about his life, but he refused and was angry over the questions. Quote, I want to be hanged and I don't want any interference by you or your filthy kind. I just know more about the world and the essential evil nature of man and don't play the hypocrite. I am proud of having killed off a few and regret that I didn't kill more. End quote. He was... Dr. Miniger would later write that he believed Carl's behavior was due to the treatment he received and endured as a child in the Minnesota State Reform School. Hmm. Carl was looking forward to his day of execution. Quote, I look forward to a seat in the electric chair or a dance at the end of a rope, just like some folks do on their wedding night. End quote. Wow. Now, Society for the Abolishment of Capital Punishment petitioned the governor's office for a pardon (laughs) of this sentence. They didn't think Carl should be killed. But on May 23rd, Carl wrote to the society and said, quote, The only things you and your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and that my hands were on it. I have no desire whatsoever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me, and I believe that the only way to reform people is to kill them, end quote. Wow. On the morning of September 5th, 1930, Carl was taken from his cell and walked to the gallows at 5.55 a.m. Carl was an unruly person to the end. He cursed his own mother for bringing him into the world and the, quote, whole damned human race, end quote. Two U.S. Marshals took him to the wooden scaffold. His teeth clenched defiantly. He faced the crowd of officials and newspaper men and guards. He climbed 13 steps to the platform, and as the marshals attempted to place a black hood over his head, Carl spit in the executioner's face and said, quote, hurry up, you bastard. I could kill 10 men while you're fooling around, end quote. Wow. 
After the hood was secured, the marshal stepped back without delay, and at exactly 6.03 a.m., the trap doors were opened. Carl Panzram dropped five and a half feet down. His body jerked repeatedly and swung from side to side. He was pronounced dead by Dr. Justin K. Fuller at 6.18 a.m. He's buried at Leavenworth in the prison cemetery. The only thing that is on his headstone is number 31614. Wow. Now... Remember I told you about Execution Rocks in the Lighthouse? Yeah. Well, it's a pretty well-known place for paranormal activity. Uh-oh. And there have been lots of reports of the sound of screaming. And I read, especially during a full moon, sounds can be heard. And according to folklore, the British avoided public execution in colonial times because they didn't want to gin up the revolutionary spirit of the American people. Mm. So they would carry them out to these rocks at low tide and tie them to these rings. So they were just carrying out this death sentence. And some people say the skeletons were left to torture the minds of the newly condemned. But the ghosts of the victims later had their revenge when a shipload of British soldiers went to pursue Washington on his retreat from Manhattan to White Plains. Mm -hmm. It sank at the reef and no redcoats survived. Ah. Now, the legend of the executions had such a hold that when light keepers were assigned to execution rocks, they were under a unique contract. No light keeper was ever to feel like he had to stay there. He was never to feel like he was chained to the reef. Really? Instead of stating a set length of duty, their contract read that their length of service was for as long as they were willing. Oh, man. And if for any reason they requested a transfer, it was instantly granted. Yeah. Wow. And they, the head keepers never spent very much time there. Wow. Now, nobody knows whether it's the colonists who were tortured and drowned by the Redcoats during the Revolutionary War or the victims of Carl Panzram who haunt these rocks. Hmm. It is very paranormal, and that is still unknown. Wow, it's crazy. But that is the story of the man who hated so much, Carl Panzram. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. Beat that. Carl, <laughs> that, I mean, I don't even have any words. They just, 
he might be the worst criminal I've ever talked about. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I don't have any words. I really don't. I mean, there was really no reason to go into all the people that he sodomized. He remembered them all. Yeah. And, and dates and everything. He was a smart guy. Yeah. I was about ready to say he wasn't an idiot. No, no. And he's jumping ship and going from place to place. And I just don't know how evil could stay around that long. Yeah. But I have a feeling that his feet are pretty warm right now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't think we'll see him on the other side. No, no. Well, but that's a horrible person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I need to flush all that away. <laughs> so are criminals made or are criminals born? Are killers made or are killers born? I think it's probably a combination of, of the both. two. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of like... Um, Sort of like uh, somebody with a mental disorder and then they start smoking weed or something like that and it can, you know. Just kicks it off? Kicks it off, yeah. So I think somebody that has propensity to be evil. Yeah, if he's treated poorly. Yeah. It just brings Because there are other out. people that have been abused and stuff like that and they've come out of it and they've, you know, made something of their lives. But, yes. Wow. Well. Not Carl. Okay, well, let's uh, <laughs> let's move on, shall we? Let's do it. All right, with a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. Well, as I was saying, I wanted to flush that out. My first one is kind of appropriate because that flushing sound you're hearing. <laughs> yes. Stealing a toilet is probably not very high on anyone's priority <laughs> list. Yeah. Stealing a used hotel toilet is even less so, but authorities in South Carolina are looking into a toilet that was stolen from a USA Economy Lodge. They stole it out of the room? <laughs> yes, gross. Huh? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, According to Fox Carolina, a hotel staff member was checking rooms and noticed that the toilet was missing from one of them. I mean, yeah. that's pretty obvious. You're going in to clean the room. Oh! No yeah. toilet. Yeah, as you can guess, tracking down the apparent thief wasn't too hard, seeing as they didn't have to look any further than the last guest that checked into the room. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> However, a judge denied a warrant for the guest suspected of vandalism. Now the hotel is out of $500 to replace the John, and the cheapskate hotel guest now has a toilet used by other people. We don't know nothing about nobody yeah. stealing no toilet. Pretty much everybody loses on that one. Yeah. yeah all right. All right, let's Let's go to number two. I'm calling this, that's a pretty crappy way of trying to get hired. I got a little theme going here. Okay. All right. It's perfectly normal to be upset if you don't get hired at a place, but mailing them cat poop as <laughs> retribution is pretty classless and a stupid move and might <laughs> land you in some serious hot water. According to the St. Louis Dispatch, a 58-year-old man was frustrated with not being hired by numerous companies Aww. that he packaged up cat feces and sent it to the places that didn't hire him in the mail. Straight from the, the litter box to your home. Yeah, that's misdemeanor mailing, injurious articles, in case you were wondering. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is a felony. <laughs> <laughs> he sent out about 20 of these cat's prize packages before police came knocking at his door. How many cats does he have? <laughs> I don't know, but he showed, he showed them, didn't he? I mean, yeah, he yeah. did. I bet every one of those HR offices was thinking, a box of cat poop? Man, we better hire this guy that sent it to us. <laughs> I mean, did he put his return address on it? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Love, George, and Mittens. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> oh man! All right, number three: be kind and rewind. Oh, yeah. remember, remember back it. in the day, yeah, when uh, you had to go to a video rental store to find a movie to watch on a Friday night, and there was always somebody complaining about having to pay a late return fee. That's a big deal. Yeah, it was. You used to be able to like put them in the slot too. Yeah, 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 I remember that. Well, a South Carolina woman recently spent a night in jail because of a movie she rented and never returned all the way back in 2005. According to Nine News, the now 27-year-old woman rented a copy of Monster in Law from Dalton Videos back in 2005. She never returned the tape, and the video store, you know, has since gone out of business. Yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah, however, before it did, the store's owner had gone to a county magistrate who filed an arrest warrant for the woman. Fast forward to this year, the woman is filing charges against some weirdo for stalking and harassing her. Police see her arrest warrant and toss her in the slammer for a night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she was not too happy about it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but maybe she should have thought about it before she decided not to return her movie. Well, wait a second. I bet she didn't rewind either. <laughs> when you don't return the movie, usually they just charge your card for the whole movie. Hey, in South Carolina, they took their videos very seriously. <laughs> I mean, okay. Yeah, Apparently, yeah. Monster-in-Law. Yeah. I mean, it's a cute movie, but... <laughs> not worth a night in not jail. Not worth a night in jail. Now I'm like, what What do I have in this house that was... Okay. You better check those library books you have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number four. I'll have a McFury, please. Fury? Yep. Okay. A woman was not loving it after a man refused to buy her a McFlurry at a Florida McDonald's. So much so that she allegedly set his car on fire. Holy cow. <laughs> According to WFTV, witnesses say the woman was with the man in the restaurant and got angry when he declined to buy her a McFlurry. She grabbed his car keys and went to the parking lot. Instead of pouting in the passenger seat, she poured alcohol and gasoline on the car and lit it on fire before running away. <laughs> Penny. Yeah. Thankfully, there wasn't much damage to the car as the guy was able to drive it away after police helped him put it I out. I bet he ruined his paint job. Yeah. I'm assuming he's never going to buy that woman a McFlurry She's ever never again. getting a McFlurry now, <laughs> ever, for the oh, rest of her life. Bless her heart. You'd get me a McFlurry if I asked. Yeah, absolutely. I'd get you too. I know. Of course he would. Of course he would. <laughs> well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, like Carl Pansram, no, yeah. he does not need his heart blessing. No. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> or the woman with the McFlurry. And it took me a couple seconds when you said I have a theme going because you started with a toilet and then went to cat poop. Cat poop. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't want to stop you because you were on a roll. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> if you've got a bless your heart. All you got to do is go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu where you can also suggest a case. Yep. And while you're there, you can also catch the link to join the in-laws and outlaws. Yep. And don't send us any cat poop. Don't don't send us any cat poop, please. <laughs> mittens can just keep it just keep it in Mittens litter yep. box yep. for sure. Keep your own presence. And thank you to I think there were three of the in-laws and outlaws, or three people who actually suggested this case to do Carl. Yeah. So thank you to you. If you do send in the form, we do look at them. Yeah. Even if you don't get a response. I'm sorry if I don't get back to everybody. Yeah. That's all we have today. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide when I might have a McFlurry. <laughs> <laughs> just, just for insurance purposes. There you go. <laughs> Bye, y'all. <laughs>